So um, you folks hear me lament from time to time that uh, in the original text, there weren't any chapters or, or verse breakdowns. It was just the text. It just sort of flowed, you know, and Paul's letters work like that. And, um, and so do the, the, these narrative portions of Scripture. We've broken them down and put them into verses for the purposes of study. And that, that, that's good. That's no problem. But it does get in the way when, uh, when you need to approach something from a different vantage point. Um, and that's the case in what we're going to be talking about uh, over the course of the next few weeks. Um, because in, here in Second Samuel, where, where we have come to um, in our study, Second Samuel chapters 11 to 21, they form for us w- one of the clearest descriptions of generational sin in the whole of the Bible, which is what I want to teach about, is generational sin, generational curses and blessing, and what it means for you and I to understand how this works in the life of David how it works in our lives, and how we can be made free from generational curses. Um, I sense from the Holy Spirit that this is a, a, a very important teaching. It's also 10 chapters, right? And I can no sooner preach through all this and do a good job with it in giving you what it is you need and also giving the text what it deserves than I could jump over the moon, um, which is why, um, particularly at the end of today's message, it's just going to feel a little like distended and open and inconclusive, and uh, next week, it's gonna probably going to be a little worse, because you might be depressed as well, but it'll come back around, I promise. The point is this, is that if you're going on vacation, or if you're not going to be here, um, the, the, these next series of sermons, and I honestly don't know how long it's going to be, um, it depends on, you know, how, how, how much gusto I get going, um, so uh, it, just stay connected to it through the teachings online. Right, if you miss a Sunday, make sure that you come back to the teaching because ha- th- this next point uh, of, uh, of teachings is, is meant to be all connected and to go all together. Um, and there's no way that we can do it. I mean, I could do it uh, honestly if we could all stay till 9 o'clock tonight, you know, um, but that's a bit ridiculous, right? So Second uh, Samuel 11 to 21 forms one of the clearest descriptions of generational sin in the Bible and, and what it looks like, how it works. Uh, and I think that it's a timely thing for us, mainly because at different pockets of Cornerstone life and ministry, and also regionally speaking as well, literally, if I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not making this up, I think I tried to count over the last six months, I've been invited into nine different discernment opportunities, either with families, individuals, or, or ministries across southeastern PA, and it has all been linked back to generational curses. Like, that, that, that there is a generational thing that is going on and, um, and, and helping people hear God's uh, revelation for them in the midst of generational curses and what it also means to be free from generational curses by instilling a place of generational blessing. Um, this has been, this is a, a major theme. So I knew we were getting to this point in Second Samuel, and I was pretty stoked about it um, because it's such a, um, I think, timely thing. I mean, it's an it's a incredible story. This story for itself is, is incredible. Um, but I think particularly timely and even regionally speaking, this teaching is, is important and is, um, is something that I, I'm really excited about. So generational curses, if you don't know what that's about, stick your, stick your finger in 2 Samuel 13. Flip back to Exodus chapter 20. Just for a quick definition as to what it is that we're talking about when it comes to generational curses. The Ten Commandments is the text that we'll find in here in Exodus 20. 
and um, also lines out. If you think about Ten Commandments, right, um, the Ten Commandments would be very similar to just, you know, a, a system of law in America. You know, so these are the governmental basic principles of God. When you get to the Ten Commandments, you're talking about God's governance, the way that God runs things, right? Verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of, out of, the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. The second commandment, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Right here in the Ten Commandments, which is the basic government of God, the, the way that God structures his interactions with humans, part of one of the key places and basic foundational principles of God's government toward humans is that the iniquity of fathers is passed on to their children, right? The iniquity of fathers is passed on to their children. Notice what's not passed on, and that is the judgment for the iniquity is not passed on. Very, very important. If you are here today and you are owned by a sin that owned your father, and you are allowing your father's sin to be the point of responsibility that you have in not being able to have victory over this thing, that's bogus. Because the judgment towards your father is not your judgment. If you want to be free, you can be free. Somebody say amen to that, please. Thank you. Goodness gracious. Let's get Baptist in here. Okay. Um, if you want to be free, you can be free. This is not a sentence. Like, God is not a capricious God going, man, I hate sin so much, and those, those people there that I'm just, I'm going to keep this going through the line until, darn it, they feel it deep enough in them that somebody can finally break it all. Rah, rah, rah. And again, it's not God. God doesn't do that. Right? God, in his government, in context, visits the iniquity of the children, or of the fathers, onto the children, so as to break idolatry in a family lineage. It is God's grace. It is God's grace that he gives us this point of revelation in Exodus 20, so that we know what the outcomes and outworkings of sin are, and can walk circumspectly and aware as to how it is that the enemy is going to be coming at you and me. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Sin is imparted through the Father to his children. With that comes the results of that sin. Right? With that comes this generational iniquity thing, iniquity thing. The weaknesses of your father will be passed on to you. And it goes back, and you can see to the third and fourth generation. And later on, you can read in some of the prophets that some sins even extend all the way to the tenth generation when it comes to the way that sin works itself out. So, this is a generational curse, right? The sin of the fathers passed on to the children through the sin nature that a father imparts to his children. It comes in a unique and special way. Now go back to 2 Samuel 13. So, like we said, 
2 Samuel chapter 11 to 21 form one of the best generational curse descriptions in, in the whole Bible. Now I'm starting here in 2 Samuel 13. But if you, if you remember, 2 Samuel 11 is the, uh, um, the point of adultery for David and Bathsheba, right? David it doesn't go out to war. He sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. He desires her. He calls for her. Um, did you know that Bathsheba's father is one of David's 30 mighty men? His closest personal guard? Like, this wasn't... This was interesting. It's much more involved and, and dark than what we tend to, to give, it, uh, g- g- give it credit. Um, David calls for her. He brings her in. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He realizes what the ramifications of this are, the consequences of it. Um, and he then decides to have her husband murdered, which he pulls off successfully. Nathan the prophet then comes back to him, and Nathan judges him and says, in the name of the Lord, you have done wrong. David receives God's judgment. He receives that upon himself. But what we see in David is that he does not walk in freedom from it. Right? He, he, he does not walk in freedom from it. And from chapter 11, all the way through the rest of the scripture that tells us about the life of David, we see David struggling with these concepts and the ramifications of them. Not, not just sexual temptation, that, that's, that's the really obvious one. But he also struggles with fathering from this point on. Because David does not act within himself to live victoriously over the sin that he has chosen, he cannot interact with his children about the same things that they deal with. Because David does not choose victory in his own life over these sins, he cannot act honestly with his own children in regard to their struggles with the same thing. That's a generational curse. Alright? So, what happens in chapter 13? Things go from bad to worse. Um, David has a whole flock of wives. Um, There we are. David has uh, seven wives altogether. Right? Seven wives all together. If you're wondering if polygamy is wrong, yes it is. Um, but David and a lot of the other um, Old Testament patriarchs have multiple wives. David's got seven of them. These are the firstborn of all seven. Right? That we, this is from Second Chronicles chapter 3. For some reason Bathsheba has all her kids listed, but it's because Solomon's youngest. Uh, we'll get there. Daniel, Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar, Adonijah, Shephatiah, Ithram, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Isn't it interesting that David names one of his sons after the prophet that came and delivered judgment to him. I just think that's really interesting. So, um, these are David's wives, and these are some of David's sons. These are David's other children. And then 2 Chronicles 3 says, and he's got a bunch of others by his ten concubines. So, David has seven wives. He's got ten concubines. Sexual sin is clearly an issue, right? clearly an issue. Sexual sin finds its way to his sons. Amnon is the oldest. Amnon calls for his half-sister, so by a different mother, Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's sister, right? Blood sister. Amnon has a major crush on, uh, on Tamar. Like he, he, is, he is so in love with her that he tells his friend that he's sick. He makes himself ill. 
that he's so deeply desirous of this woman. He sends for her, he works a big crafty scheme, and he ends up raping her. And then he sends her away. This is where we find ourselves in chapter 13, verse 23. I'll start in verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, so Absalom's talking to Tamar, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. A lot of you folks in here have been in church for a while. Is anger by the father the appropriate response to the crime of rape in God's law? No. What is? Stoning. Right? Rape is always a punishable by death offense. David gets very angry. That's it. There's clearly within the text here this concept of, well, I did it. Am I surprised that he did it? I mean, I, I, I myself crossed the highest sexual boundary line. Frankly, I think David's very aware that what he's doing by having seven wives and ten concubines is also just another deep statement of this. And by David not dealing with himself honestly, he is therefore unable to deal with his children honestly when it comes to these things. It's, this is a very important principle because on one hand, what's about to happen to David is completely out of sight of his control. On the other hand, what's about to happen to David is completely caused by himself. It's a, it, it's, it's a place that I so deeply identify <laughs> With, with David, and I hope that you can too. Like the, 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 this place of, man, there's all this stuff happening outside of me that I just, I can't seem to get dominion over. At the same time, there's, when I look at it, I can see how I've had a major hand in a lot of this stuff happening, how I've bought into some of the issues from my own generational curses. And I see it, my sons or my daughter or whoever, and, and it's this, who am I going to be in this spot? Who am I going to be in this spot? David chooses anger here. He doesn't choose justice. After two full years, verse 23, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor. All right, so um, David is one of the major players in the text. So is Amnon, so is Absalom, so is Tamar. This situation between these four key players is what begins everything that's about to ensue. And what's about to ensue is the highest level of chaos that, that the nation of Israel has ever seen, including a coup that overthrows the government and kicks David out of his own kingdom and results in his son, whom he loves deeply, being murdered by one of his chief advisors. Right? That's, that's hell in a handbasket, folks. I mean, that's, that, that is really bad. And what happens here in this situation is what spawns and opens the doors for all of that. What we do matters. What we do matters. Right? The choices that we make, they, they count. 
how we interact with our worlds, with our families, the things that we choose. They, they, there is a government of God, a spiritual government that walks itself out. I remember this came to me soon after I'd started becoming a youth pastor. A uh, girl came to my office and she sat down and she started crying. I said, what's, what's wrong? She said, I'm pregnant. And this girl is 16, 17, something like that. And I, I mean, my heart just broke for her. <laughs> I was like, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. How can I help? She said, I just can't figure out why God would let this happen. So there was obviously some work to do there, right? Right? But I, I, I think for a lot of us, we, we, we find ourselves in those kinds of ways of thinking that, that God is a God that's in heaven to ensure our happiness, to fix our mistakes, to take care of us when things go really bad, and to make us feel good about ourselves. But that's never, ever, ever the God that we see in the text. It's never, ever the God that we see there. You know, it's, what, 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 what did God have to do with choosing to have sex with your boyfriend? Where, you know, and, and then, well, I didn't have to get pregnant. You know, didn't God allow that? Well, this is how babies are made. You know, <laughs> this is an important thing for us to understand is that how we live, it walks itself out. It walks itself out. And again, it's very important to remember this, not with God up there being a capricious, harsh God. It's that there are systems of spiritual government in place. There are laws, there are consequences, right? And there is grace over all of it and love over all of it. And thank God for it, which is why Paul continually asks that question, you know, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because that's what he's talking about. He's saying, you know, by breaking laws and suffering consequences, just to say, oh, but there's grace, but there's grace, but there's grace. That's not grace. That's not grace. All right. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so Absalom, he calls for a party. Now, the dude waits two years, right? Absalom waits two years. I am completely and thoroughly impressed all the time with Absalom's patience. Like this guy, he knew how to make stuff happen. He had to have been a, a fantastic leader. Um, really, he, he, he waited two years. I don't know that I could have waited two years. You know, somebody rapes my sister. They're going to pay for that today, you know, as soon as possible. Absalom keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't say anything to Amnon. He doesn't speak a good word to him or a bad word to him. And apparently to the point that Amnon is willing to accept an invitation to a party, Right? Uh, 24. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. The king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. All right? So all of these dudes, all these people here, Go with uh, Absalom 
to the sheep shearing party. This is a very important thing, right? This is a typical cultural event, and it's sort of like uh, it's the livestock equivalent to harvest. You know, we're going to get our wool, and we're going to sell it, and we're going to make money, and because we're doing all that, let's, let's get together. Let's make this a big thing. It's like when my wife's family gets together to uh, do corn or strawberries, jam, that kind of a thing. You know, it's like it's a hoorah day, you know, even though it just is a lot of work. Um, but I enjoy the corn, so... What are you going to do? Absalom commanded his servants. Now remember, all the king's sons are together. Absalom commanded his servants. Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Who's Who's Absalom quoting there? He's quoting God, right? God's words to Joshua in chapter 1. When, God, when, when he's told to go take the land, right? And this, this guy Absalom, he's, he's smart. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Let me just remind you, this is a warrior culture. This is a warrior people. This is a people that is used to bloodshed and violence. It's how their lives ran. So when one son orders the murder of another son, the oldest son, mind you, the one who would be the heir to the throne, right, theoretically, even though we know Solomon's going to get it. They don't know that. Right? So when one son is murdered, we all get terrified. Right? And this is what happens. There is a massive fear. While they were on the, I'm sorry, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon all he commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule and fled, because all they knew was that somebody was on the warpath. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men. The king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. All right, so... Uh, David commits sexual sin with Bathsheba and murders Uriah. Amnon commits sexual sin with Tamar and effectively murders Tamar. Like, her life at that point is done. She was desolate. She'll never be married. She'll never have children. And she has to be locked up in a room somewhere. Right? Sexual sin, murder. Sexual sin, murder. What we see Absalom do is Absalom, because of this line that's going through them, takes the life for the life. Right? Absalom kills because Amnon killed. Right? The purity, the dignity of his sister. And then we'll see Amnon, or I'm sorry, Absalom enter into sexual sin as well. Therefore, verse 33, Let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came, lifted up their voice, and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amuhud, king of Geshur. 
And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. You catch this? David, the spirit of the king, wanted to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. David's own sin kept him from walking in righteousness toward an offense by one of his sons. Thus, in the long run, causing David to not judge Amnon, but then feeling good in his heart about the fact that another one of his sons had judged Amnon, be it unrighteously and outside of God's ways, and felt good about the fact that this had been taken care of, because certainly word was getting around. So now Amnon is dead. That's what matters, apparently, in the situation, in David's mind. Absalom has to flee. All right, he has to flee. In the meantime, David feels okay about this. David, in his own heart, is settled with at least Amnon's dead, and he has a strong affinity for his son Absalom. All right, so you see here, uh, Absalom and Tamar, their mom is Machah. Machah comes from Geshur. Geshur's up here in East Manasseh. See this country here, Aram? Geshur is one of the people groups, one of the tribal groups of the Arameans. So Geshur, actually, strangely enough, is right here. It's contained completely within East Manasseh. It's an Aramean tribal group that the people of Israel did not kick out, that they did not conquer. Uh, they had let them stay and have their autonomy, and there was a king there in Geshur. David married Machah because of an alliance between his throne and Geshur, which means that the king of Geshur is what to Absalom? Grandfather. Grandfather, right? His mother, her father, is the king of Geshur. So he's got a place to run, right? He's got a place to hide. And frankly, you know, when you're with your grandparents, you get to have fun. You know, it's, there's a lot of freedom in this situation, I would imagine, for Absalom. A lot, a lot of freedom in this situation. At the same time, there is a something stirring in the back of Absalom's mind. Now Joab, verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. It's very interesting to me in First and Second Samuel to watch the power of the women that are described in this story. From Abigail to Bathsheba, the witch at Endor, the wise woman that Joab hires here to speak to King David. Like th there is a inherent strength given to femininity in First and Second Samuel. That's very, very interesting. Pretend to be a mourner. Oh, I already read that. When, when the woman of Tekoa, verse 4, came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king! The king said to her, What's your trouble? She said, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. And your servant had two sons. They quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. 
Now the whole clan's risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we, may, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, Be On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house that the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me. He shall never touch you again. Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, she said, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Right? So again, in this culture, if you kill somebody, the family of the person that you killed is allowed to kill you unless you can make your way to a city of refuge, of which there are six in general proximity to where you are. Hopefully you can run fast. Um, If you kill by accident, if you kill, uh, you can go to one of these cities of refuge. If you kill on purpose, then you're dead no matter what. So in this woman, th- this woman sets up this thing, this construct. Actually, Joab sets up this construct to cause the heart of the king to feel something about loyalty, right? But to cause the heart of the king to feel uh, connected to this woman, to this situation, right? And so David has to step into this place and give a judgment as to whether or not this boy killed his brother, Hmm. Can David identify with that? This boy killed his brother, but king, you understand that I don't want my only heir, my husband's name will die if this person is is not is given righteousness. Like, please, can you can you shift the laws for me? Can you shift the law for me so that the avenger of blood can't can't have uh, uh, can't have this life? My other family members can't judge him. Can can you shift things for me? The king says, yes. The woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. He said, speak. The woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. In other words, the nation of Israel should have the ability to rise up against Absalom if they so choose. And you, letting him be in exile, when you know where he is and you know how to go get him, that's wrong. That was a good summation. Skip down to verse 18. The king said, answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the, king, and the woman said, Let the Lord my king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that the lord, my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. That's some nice things to say. Okay, so Joab is another major player in the story now, right? It is a consistent quandary in the mind of anyone reading First and Second Samuel as to whether or not Joab's a good guy or a bad guy. Um, because on one hand, Joab is the most loyal, faithful, friend in dark times to David, and the next time, man, this dude is working some politics that are, are dangerous and that, I mean, is he serving the king or is he serving himself? What exactly is happening in Joab's mind? And anytime Joab begins to talk, you got to begin to ask yourself these things. It, where is he? Right? Like, where? What, what's he shooting for? What, what's he going after? Does he just have a strong sense of right and wrong? 
Or is there something else in the works? The king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. 21. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose. He went to Geshur. He brought Absalom to Jerusalem. But the king said, now get this. The king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Anybody remember who else was called the most handsome man in the world? Saul. That's right. I mean, the, the writer of Samuel, he, he uses these phrases on purpose. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, for it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of the, his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's five pounds. That's five pounds of hair. This dude could grow some hair. Right? I mean, he could, he could self-sustain locks of love. <laughs> Fantastic. And apparently, having thick, rich, dark, beautiful hair like he would have had was very beautiful in those days. Very handsome man. They were born to Absalom three sons. One daughter, whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. I just love the way the writer Sam, he just, he, he just throws phrases in there that if you read these texts too fast, you, you miss just some very interesting stuff. Slow down when you read the Bible. So, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Two years, right? Two years between the rape and the killing of Amnon. Three years between the killing of Amnon and Geshur. Two years back in Jerusalem, living in his own house, away from his father. A prince that's not allowed to live in the palace is not a prince. Did you catch that? A prince not allowed to live in the palace is not a prince. Absalom is not happy. This is exactly what Joab wanted. Joab, he's just so smart. If he had, Joab, I think on some level, knew that David wouldn't call for Absalom's head, even though he he could and and should have. But I think Joab thought to himself, I I can kill Absalom at some point. You know, that something is going to happen. That will enable me to kill Absalom at some point. But in the meantime, if I can bring him back and make his life just blatantly miserable, that's okay too. Which is exactly what happens. And Absalom knows who's behind it. Absalom lived two full years, verse 28, in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, and this is just Absalom, like I said, smart guy. See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom. (laughs) No kidding. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Dun, dun, dun. Right? 
I mean, this, like, this, this, this drama is unfolding, and there's this climax, and there's murders, and there's sex and intrigue, and there's, I mean, anybody that says that the Bible is boring, man, I beg to differ. The, the Bible is an incredible, an incredible work, not just of, of truth, but the way that it tells itself to us. I mean, it's just so good. It's, it's such a rich, rich text. Joab's here, and the fire's burning. Why have you set my field on fire? Uh, I tell you what, and Absalom knew David, right? I mean, did Absalom read David's mail or what? Joab, you and I want the same thing, buddy. Justice. Right? I just want to be treated fairly. So, let's send him before the king. If he wants to put me to death, let him put me to death. And he knew David wouldn't do it. He knew it. Joab went to the king and told him and summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So David reconciles, quote unquote, right, reconciles with his son. Why isn't this working? Justin, why isn't this working? Justin, it's not working. There we go. Was that you or me? Good job. All right. Amnon rapes Tamar. Two years pass. Absalom kills Amnon. Three years pass. Absalom lives in Jerusalem. Two years pass. David, quote-unquote, reconciles with Absalom. Four years pass. And then Absalom rebels. A total of 11 years of generational festering. That's a good word. All right? 11 years of generational festering festering of just the sin being there, David's sin, Amnon's sin, injustice toward Tamar, that sin, Absalom's sin, Joab's sin. I mean, just this is this boiling cauldron of generational festering curses that are just waiting to boil over, which is exactly what happens. Exactly what happens. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. That's how to travel, folks. I mean, I don't think a presidential motorcade can stand to this. A chariot and 50 fit dudes running in front of you. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. When any man had a dispute before the king, to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Hey, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no one designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Next slide, please, Justin. In summation, for today, right? Yeah, for today. Two things, principally. Number one is that generational curses produce impotence. And I use that word on purpose. Generational curses produce impotence, particularly in men. 
an inability to be powerful where he was made to wield power. Our generational curses produce impotence, particularly in men. Honestly, folks, I think that all these drug commercials that we get used to seeing in regard to this, I think that we are living in a prophetic statement day. Right? The, 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 the number one generational curse issue in America today is absent fathers. And there's a rash, then, of biological issues regarding men and impotence. Right? Generational curses rob power. They produce impotence in someone. An, inabil- an inability to be powerful where a man was made to wield power. This is exactly what happens to David. David has every bit of power given to him. Folks, literally every bit of power. He's the dad. He's the king. He's the lawgiver and the judge in the nation. He has every bit of power at his disposal. But because of his own sin back here, his power to wield that power is completely limited. And he cannot walk in righteousness the way that he was meant to. Generational curses produce impotence in men. They have what it takes, but they don't use it. The raw material is in there, but there is a passivity and a pullback from it that says no. And the reason that it says no is because of shame. An inappropriate concept of victory that says that if I'm ever going to walk in generational curses, then that means that I have to have complete like freedom from this thing. No one in your family wants you to be free from your generational curse. They just want you to be in it with them. And that means if you have power and you're holding it back and you're not giving yourself to them in that way, then you are living impotently with power but not wielding it. And our families need our presence in everything, including the things that we hate about ourselves, including the secret sins that we keep to ourselves. That's the spot where our families most need us. That's the spot where David's family most needed him. And it didn't happen. And at the end of this story, there are two dead boys because of it. Next slide, Justin. The impotence opens the door for the destructive power of sin in the lives of a father's children. All right, the impotence opens the door for the destructive power of sin in the lives of children. It produces a place that is unsafe for both your physical and spiritual children. It's an unsafe place there where they are open to attack because we're, we're meant as fathers to be a covering Right? We're meant to be covering with our children and our wives under us where they can be protected and kept safe. But where generational curses hold sway is the places that our covering doesn't reach, but that our families are still very much there. And so it doesn't, it doesn't have this overarching thing that it needs to have. And then we see this in the life of David. Like Amnon and Absalom are are deeply, deeply open to David's own fallenness and curses. I mean, do they have to take responsibility for themselves? Absolutely, and they, and they do. I mean, God holds them to account. It's not that at all. It's that what is playing out here 
is very, very succinctly a, a inter-family generational passing of sin and iniquity that carries itself out with the results and consequences that come from it. It also is a place of the reality of the general curse and the blessing and iniquity carrying themselves out. But David, in the midst of all of this, pursuing God during it. And the one who chose impotency initially ends up choosing power. And so there is this incredible story of redemption in and through all this by David that we'll walk through, that we'll look at, and that we'll engage together. But in conclusion, for today, understand this. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness by the power of the one who called us. You and I can live in victory. If you look at your lineage and all you see is brokenness and destruction in the same places over and over, you can be a generation changer. There is freedom. His name is Jesus, right? Who has completely conquered, who has completely destroyed the power of sin, death, and the grave. And while we live in the reality of the fallen world governance systems that we do, Jesus has set up a new reality, a different place, another dimension. This kingdom of darkness thing is not our stomping grounds anymore. Right? We now live with him and here, and this is submitted to this. Right? So you can live in freedom. You can live in freedom. You can have victory. Power is yours. It's just what has to change is our mindset about victory, power, and freedom. Because we've so religiousized them. Is that a word? I don't know. We've so religiousized them. I like it. Um, that, that, that we've walked away from the reality of what those definitions are and what it means to be a person who's victorious and what it means to be a person who is truly free. So, like I said, I'm real excited about this. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but stay with us. Next week, like I said, you might be depressed. Next week, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at um, a, the spirit of division, um, which is what Absalom produces in himself as a spirit of division. Um, in my opinion... I think that a spirit of division is the central curse on the land of Pennsylvania. And uh, that everywhere what the enemy is trying to do is to divide. Divide. Divide homes, divide marriages, divide churches, divide people, divide, divide, divide. And I think Absalom produces this. So come next week and we'll continue walking through what it means to live as the people of God in regard to these generational curses. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the, uh, the freedom that you give us in Jesus. Thank you that generations can change. Thank you that the sin that has owned us does not have to own us, that we can walk in your grace and newness of life. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the goodness that is our God and the powerful name of Jesus. We bless your name, Father. We bless you. Where our curses find us and own us, we bless you. Jesus, draw us away from those things and back to you in worship. And on the mountaintops of our lives where 
You've never been more real. We declare your blessing and goodness. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in the presence of our enemies at the table, in the deep, deep places of joy and rest, man, we bless you. We say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the one who destroys every curse. Yeah, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.